Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the January edition of the Bookseller Podcast. It's 2020 and pretty much the only thing I feel sure about at the start of this new decade is that the need to read good books is more important than ever. And there are good books galore. Today I'll be joined by Philip Jones, Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson from the Bookseller who will run us through what to look out for in the year ahead and what we can read right now in January. Two magnificent authors this month to interview. I'll be talking to Deepa Anapara about her debut novel, Gin Patrol on the Purple Line, and to Sophie Hanna, whose latest thriller, Haven't They Grown, takes us to the dark heart of what looks like a perfect family. Then we'll play out with a clip from Miss Austin by Jill Hornby, which tells the story of Jane Austen's sister Cassandra and her attempts to try to safeguard her sister's reputation. So, let's be off. Let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson from The Bookseller. Hello. Hello. And we've got the editor of The Bookseller with us today, Philip Jones. Hi, Cathy. Philip, 2020, what's the year got in store for us book-wise? What's the big event? Well, the big book of this uh, quarter will be uh, The Hilary Mantel, The Mirror and the Light, the third book in her trilogy about Thomas Cromwell which is coming at the beginning of March, which, uh, you know, the the market desperately needs event books. And it's great when you get an event book that is both going to be a commercial hit and a literary hit. So this is a book that will probably outsell everything in that week of publication and in the following weeks, but will also be a contender, obviously, for the Booker Prize, having won it for her two previous books in this series. And it will be a big moment for, I think, for Waterstones and for physical booksellers everywhere, because it will be a beautiful Beautiful package, priced at £25 for a hardback. There will be exclusive editions, I'm sure, and signed editions and uh, lots and lots of events that hopefully Hilary Mantel will be attending. And it's a chance for, I think, for high street booksellers in particular to extol the physical qualities of reading beautiful hardback Mm -hmm. editions. It's a big moment, isn't it? I was thinking about the, you know, when she started off with Wolf Hall, the first book in her trilogy, and then of course there was Bring Up the Bodies, both of them winning the Booker Prize. Then a long wait for this last one, which I think is because she got very involved in the dramatizations. Do you think there'll be retail hoopla? Will there be midnight openings and that kind of thing? I suspect Waterstones will be throwing everything at it. Waterstones has had a fairly quiet Christmas, apparently, the, the chain told the bookseller this week. So I think it will be trying to wrest back some of that uh, sales growth that it needs as a kind of high street player uh, in competition with Amazon, which obviously can do the pre-order sales and the on-day delivery. So whatever advantage that Waterstones can throw at this, they will do. And, and generally, they do pretty well with these kind of big event mm-hmm. books. They do tend to get uh, market share above and beyond what you might expect for uh, a high street chain. But also, for Indies it will be a spectacular moment I suspect they will do lots and lots of in-store stuff whether Hilary Mantel can attend or not or will attend or will do kind of one spectacular event we don't know the details Mm -hmm. yet but I imagine her publisher Fourth Estate and lots of high street retailers will be doing whatever they can to get that book out far and wide on uh, publication day and beyond Yes well I will be cancelling everything but reading that book I was thinking when was I last so excited about reading something I was last this excited about reading a book for Bring Up the Bodies the last one Wow (laughs) So yeah And of course it's unusual for commercial book to also be a contender for a literary prize but we did have one fairly recently which was the testaments by 
Margaret Atwood and that did go on to win half a booker. So hopefully this will have a similar trajectory in terms of both sales and critical plaudits. Yeah, exciting times. Caroline, you are the non-fiction expert at the bookseller. Now, traditionally, as I remember from my bookselling days, January has always been thick with diet books. Is that still the case? Yes, indeed. That hasn't changed. I mean, in many ways, January is the uh, most predictable month of the year for non-fiction and increasingly December as well, because a lot of the big books are now publishing even before we've stuffed ourselves stupid over Christmas. Yeah, is that, that's a sign of the times, isn't it? That like by halfway through Boxing Day, people want to, to start on the diet. Yes, <laughs> yes I mean, maybe it's just, just getting yourself ready, preparing for mm-hmm. what you're going to do um, in January. I have to stop my eyes glazing over slightly with January because I think that it's not often we talk about lifestyle publishing and the contribution that that makes to our business. It's a huge contribution, in fact. And and when we think about how well the, the three now pinch of nom titles have done, really kind of under the radar in many ways community when it was spotted by Bluebird, um, pinch of nom diets, weight loss sort of community online. And that's transferred spectacularly well to print. So the first pinch of nom book that came out in uh, March last year has now sold over one million copies. So it's amazing, really. And I think in terms of other trends that I might mention, uh, it's all about doing it quickly. So uh, the seven minute body plan by Lucy Wyndham Reed was one of the ones that I spotted. And she has a massive online following as well of around one million on YouTube. Feel better. You just have to do like seven minutes once. Yeah, seven (laughs) minutes once and that's it. Obviously, it's a a bit harder work than that. Um, Feel better in five by our old friend, Dr. Rangan Chasaji. Oh, we had him on last Um, year. He's great. That book's great, actually. So it's, it's very interesting. But I mean, I think what it's also interesting to think about starting a new year, starting a new decade, is whether New Year, New You shouldn't just be a self-centred thing. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting this year to see how publishers respond to sustainability and climate change issues. And I think um, for all of us, hopefully it will be a year about thinking more about that and uh, it'd be interesting to see what publishers do I think children's publishers have really trailblazed in this area Mm. in lots of ways so interesting to see how um, adult publishers respond and there's new imprints coming mm-hmm. notably from Bluebird who's Pinch of Noms publishers so another book in that line How to Break Up with Fast Fashion by Lauren Bravo that's a, a really good one for thinking about your own personal consumption Excellent and you've got in front of you a book by my favourite author, I would say, of non of helping nonfiction, because it's Catherine Gray who wrote The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, yes, which I always like to mention in case anybody wants to... Having just had my third birthday as a sober person, uh, that book is a very helpful ally. Tell us about this new one. Yeah, she's a terrific writer, really non-preachy mm. and interesting and entertaining and funny. This is her third book. So, as you said, the first one, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. Then she did The Unexpected Joy of Being Single. <laughs> Um, And now we have the unexpected joy of the ordinary in celebration of being average. And I think it's rather wonderful, you know, in this time of the year when we're all being maybe a bit over aspirational and worrying if we should be more this and less that. Uh, she really celebrates the, I suppose it's counting your blessings and an attitude of gratitude, but not in a sort of preachy way that makes everyone go, you know. Um, <laughs> and there's lovely odes, different odes to the ordinary in it. So I'm enjoying that very much as well. That's lovely. And memoir, what's good memoir-wise this month? Oh, absolutely. The standout memoir for January is Motherwell by the sadly late Deborah Orr. 
trailblazing journalist in many ways. And this is her first book. It's a memoir of growing up in Motherwell in Scotland. I mean, tremendous title. Just the title is incredibly resonant. And it's just exceptionally honest, exceptionally powerfully written. I mean, you know, it's very sad that it's also her swan song as well as her debut, but what a what a testament to the to writer and journalist and you know, supportive presence for many people that she was too. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to mention a non-fiction book because my treat to myself, my non-work reading over Christmas was Square Haunting by Francesca Wade. And five women lived in Mecklenburg Square between the wars, including Virginia Woolf and Dorothy Sayers. And it's just a gorgeous delight of a book, really immersive. Perfect to read over Christmas, actually. So if you're now busy and overwhelmed, you maybe save it for next Christmas. <laughs> yes, I've read that too. I'm it's not, good, isn't it? Yeah, it's excellent. Can't have too much Dorothy Sayers um, in our lives. Alice, fiction-wise, what novels should we read in January? Well, Cathy, there are two absolute standout debuts coming in January. And I'm going to put uh, my money where my mouth is and say, I doubt I'll read a pair of better debuts this year. Mm -hmm. That's how good I think they are. The first one I'm going to talk to you about is Such a Fun Age by an American author called Kylie Reid. This has a very dramatic um, opening chapter, which is just what you want with a debut to get you absolutely gripped. Um, It opens in um, a very posh grocery store in Philadelphia. Uh, It's 11 o'clock in the evening. Amira Tucker is a 25-year-old college graduate who's been called um, in a panic by her employer. She works um, part-time as a babysitter to ask if Amira would pick up their daughter, two-year-old Briar, and just take her out of the house and look after her um, while they sort something out at home. So Amira is there in this grocery store with two-year-old Briar trying to sort of entertain her. And there's a big kerfuffle. A security guard working in the store basically accuses Amira of kidnapping Briar because Amira is black and Briar is white. And the rest of the novel really is the fallout from this night. And the story unfolds both from Amira's point of view and her employer, Alex Chamberlain. Now, Alex is a 33-year-old white woman. She is a blogger turned influencer, which is very current. And she feels this huge guilt about what's happened to Amira. And she tries sort of desperately to make it up to her in these sort of increasingly cringe-inducing ways. What Kylie Reid is is partly doing with this novel is sort of exploring the uneasy nature of a transactional relationship and what it means when someone is actually paid to be part of the family. And then we also have Amira. It's also kind of a coming-of-age story, really, because Amira, as I say, is a 25-year-old college graduate, but she's really drifting. She's got this um, great group of friends who are all sort of progressing with their career, and she's really not. But she's feeling the pressure because, uh, as I learned from reading this book, she's about to come off her parents' health insurance cover, which is a really big deal. And so, I mean, it's a fantastic plot, which I'm not going to go into because I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's such... A sharply observed, well-crafted debut. It's about race and class and privilege in contemporary America. But it's such a polished debut. You know, there is not a single spare word in there. Mm -hmm. It's just honed to perfection. It's such a fresh, charming voice. And, you know, she's talking about some really important big subjects, but with such a kind of light touch. And I recommend this to everyone, really. I can't think of anyone who wouldn't just love this debut. I certainly did. And I can't wait for her next novel. Brilliant. And then what's your other one? My next one, which I loved 
just as much is called uh, Gym Patrol on the Purple Line and it's by um, Deepa Anapara is narrated by nine-year-old Jai, who lives with his ma and papa in a slum, a basti, uh, on the outskirts of a uh, sprawling Indian city, which isn't named in the novel. And Jai is an avid watcher of reality TV cop shows, um, specifically Police Patrol. And so he uh, he's convinced that he's got these amazing kind of crime-solving skills that he's learned off the telly. So when a classmate of his goes missing, he attends this big, sprawling government school in the city. He thinks, well, I'll find this missing classmate. And he enlists the help of two friends, um, Parry and Fies, and off they go to hunt for this missing child. The real strength in this novel, and the reason why it really stood out for me, is Jai's voice, because it's, I think it's incredibly difficult to get the tone right of a child narrator. And it's utterly convincing, his voice. He's sort of cheeky, lively, irrepressible. And this actually enables the novel to go to some really dark places. Because what Anapara also does incredibly skillfully is she sort of reveals the harsh reality of Jai's life that actually lies just beyond his understanding. Mm -hmm. But we, the reader, understand what it's really like. More and more children start to go missing. Um, and that's the sort of central mystery which, which powers the book. Where, where are these disappeared children? And of course, Jai and his friends, as you might tell from the title, Jim Patrol, believe that these children have been kind of spirited away by gins. And, you know, if they look hard enough, they will find them. And we know uh, that the reality is sort of far, far bleaker. And this is a novel that also deals with the police corruption, the horrific inequality in India, and the statistic that apparently... 180 children go missing in India every day. And I was fortunate enough to interview Deepa about this book. And it has its roots in her. She used to be a journalist in India and she spent a lot of time going into slums and interviewing children. And I think that's where the incredible power of the novel comes from. You know, it's really rooted in reality, but she's using fiction to explore some really important questions about contemporary India. It's a stunning debut. I almost couldn't believe it was a debut. It's mm -hmm. so good. It's just beautifully crafted and it's so powerful. And again, I, I just I can't wait to see what she writes next. I think she's incredible. So both your recommendations do that thing that fiction does, doesn't it? Where people make up stories mm. to explore something that's happening yes. in real life. Yeah, yeah. And, and incredibly powerfully. As I say, I, I really do recommend these two books to everybody. Great. Well, that's plenty for people to read. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Also out in January is a new book by the multi-talented Sophie Hanna. Sophie is a poet and a hugely best-selling crime writer whose work has been translated into 49 languages. Her new book, Haven't They Grown?, starts off when Beth finds herself near the house of the former best friend she hasn't seen for 12 years. She can't resist going to have a look. Sophie, tell us what happens next. <laughs> well, she goes to have a look and while she's there spying on the house from her car, <laughs> the gates of the house open remotely and a Range Rover drives in through the gates and she sees her friend Flora, her ex-best friend. So they haven't seen each other. The friendship ended very abruptly. She sees Flora getting out of the car and she thinks, yep, there she is, 12 years older, but still the same Flora. And then Flora opens the back door of the car and Beth hears her say, come on, Thomas, come on, Emily, out you get. And Beth thinks to herself, oh, my God, she's still talking to her kids. 
as though they're five and three years old. How embarrassing. They must be great big teenagers by now. And then five-year-old Thomas and three-year-old Emily get out of the car and they look exactly the same as they did more than a decade ago. They are no taller, no older, or so it seems. They're wearing the same clothes that they were wearing when Beth last saw them. Why haven't they grown? Hence the title. Hence the title. (laughs) We're obviously not going to give away why haven't they grown. Definitely, we are not. Maybe. Well, how on earth did you? (laughs) Where do you get your ideas from? Tell us. Where did you get the idea from? So, in some ways, this actually happened exactly as in the beginning of the book. My husband and I were taking our son to an away football match, and it happened to be near the new house of somebody we hadn't seen for ages. We knew that they'd moved there. And I was like, hey, we could go and have a nosy at that person's new house. And my husband was like, well, I'm not too bothered, but okay, (laughs) let's do that. Um, And so we went and looked and I just idly said to my husband, ha ha, wouldn't it be funny if like they arrived back at the house while we were here and they, you know, got out of the car and imagine if their kids were exactly the same as when we last saw them. And my husband went, "Uh, yeah, well, that would obviously never happen. That's really weird. Uh, and I just thought, it, it is weird, and why might that happen mm-hmm. if it did happen? And that, you know, I just took it from there. <laughs> you write a lot of different books. I'm interested to know when you have an idea, when you have that moment of inspiration, whether you, do you know when it's going to be a poem? Do you know when it's going to be a thriller? Do you know what it might turn into, or do you just run with the idea? I always know what it's going to be. Uh, and now that I write series crime, I write standalone crime, I also know which one of those it's going to be. And I always need to have, in order to start and feel, yeah, this is definitely going to work, I need two things. I need a really intriguing plot idea. So for me, just this mystery of this apparently impossible thing, these two children who haven't aged in 12 years, and it's impossible, right? We all know it. That can't happen scientifically, but it is definitely happening because Beth sees it and she needs an explanation. So that was just such an intriguing plot talk and I always need something like that. But I also need something that I'm psychologically obsessed with or could become obsessed with Mm -hmm. to be the sort of emotional and psychological driver. And in the case of Haven't They Grown, it's that question of when is it the right thing to do to just massively interfere in another family's business? And when is it the right thing to mind your own business? Because Beth's husband, pretty much from the start, is saying, well, yes, it does sound a bit weird, but we don't need to worry about this because we don't know these people anymore. And Beth's like, yeah, but something is clearly very wrong. And she sort of feels it's almost her moral duty precisely to interfere. And I just, I think that's a... Really fascinating question. So that was what was the sort of psychological impetus behind the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose it's an age-old universal question, isn't it? But does also feel relevant now with sort of new offences like coercive control. We're more yeah. aware that people might... And I think for anyone who has children, once your children get to the age where they are socialising at all and you're either taking them on play dates to other houses or they're teenagers and so you get to know their contemporaries and their families... You know, one does encounter quite a lot of families where you think, steady on, that's not quite right. Uh, And normally it's that's not quite right in a mild way. Um, But I've had, you know, via all the sort of socialising my kids have done since they were little, I've come across some examples of families where I've thought, is this a case where I need to think, should I do something? 
Um, I've never come across children who haven't aged in 12 years, but I know that if I did... I wouldn't be able to just drop it. And my husband would say to me, come on now, let's mind our own business. And I would be like, no, I'm going to mind those little children's business until I find out why they haven't grown. Um, I enjoyed the portrait of Beth with her teenagers in the book. She's got Ben and Zanna. Um, There's a bit where she talks about teenagers and their phones and how it's frightening and depressing the way that they (laughs) the way that they are with their phones. I wondered if that's your experience. My son's 10. And so I feel I'm just about to enter into that territory. Yeah, my kids are so addicted to their phones. um, And I don't know whether it's because I I mean, I'm 48. So it's because I remember a time when when we weren't all addicted to our phones. And I think because of that, like me and my husband go on our phones but it's not the same you know teenagers these days my kids and all their friends they are just glued to their phones all the time I do find that a little bit scary and depressing Uh, and I I know that I might be wrong too because I regularly see articles where people say all these people worrying about phones and children and phones and teenagers and phones shouldn't worry it's all fine and I think oh I hope they're right Of course, some teenagers have parents who manage to stop them sometimes being on their phones, but I don't really believe in my ability to control the behaviour of anybody, especially not my teenagers. So Mm -hmm. I just sort of occasionally say, wouldn't you like to put that phone down and go and read a nice book? And they just go, oh, shut up, Mum, you're so old. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a positive uh, portrayal of life with teenagers as well, I thought. Absolutely. Well, I firmly believe that grown-ups have a lot to learn from teenagers and and from children. You know, I think there's something really great about that age where you don't think about consequences. You do be your natural self. You know, you're rebellious and you take risks and you don't worry about the future. All those things that are sort of typically teenage behaviours, I think grown-ups could learn a lot from that because most of us by the time we get to our sort of 30s we're like okay now I really do have to do all these boring difficult things (laughs) whereas teenagers (laughs) are still trying to find a way out of doing Mm -hmm. the boring difficult things and I, I find that quite admirable. Well, there is a there does turn out to be a reason why they haven't grown, and it's a, a sensible reason, as in it's not. Yes, I it's did not supernatural. No, I did. Or I did. I or, knew you wouldn't do it to me, but I hate yeah. books where the where the solution is supernatural. Well, in some I, way. I love a supernatural mystery mm-hmm. as long as it's advertised as such. Yes. Yeah. So I want to know from page one: is this going to be a mystery involving ghosts, mm-hmm. proper ghosts who turn out to be ghostly, or is it going to be a human mystery with a with a people and relationships kind of explanation and haven't they grown definitely as a people there's no ghosts there's nothing supernatural or impossible about no all does become clear in a highly satisfying way thank you um (laughs) tell us what's next for you well in may i am going to be publishing my second self-help book so i i wrote a book a couple of years ago called how to hold a grudge which is all about how holding grudges, contrary to what we've all been taught, is actually really good for you (laughs) if you do it in the right way and it helps you to be more forgiving. Mm -hmm. Then I've got a new self-help book coming out called Happiness, A Mystery and 66 Attempts to Solve It. Mm -hmm. And that is literally an investigation into what is happiness, how can we find it? And because I'm a crime writer... Um, it does have a proper satisfying solution. I do solve the mystery of what happiness is and how we can achieve it by the end of the book. 
That is brilliant. Well, we will look forward to that as well. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. What an amazing woman. How does she find the time to fit it all in? Our next author is taking us to India. Deepa Anapara grew up in Kerala and worked as a news reporter for 11 years in Delhi and Mumbai, specialising in education. And this ultimately inspired her first novel, Gin Patrol on the Purple Line. Deepa, tell us about life in the Basti and the children that you interviewed there. So Basti is an impoverished neighbourhood, sort of like a makeshift settlement that typically comes up in cities to house labourers who move in from other parts of the country. They come in for work as construction workers or labourers or housemates. And because the city can't accommodate their housing needs, they tend to set up a sort of makeshift settlements nearby, near their places of work. And these houses are typically very close by to each other. They're, mm-hmm. they're packed chock-a-block. So a lot of labour in cities like Mumbai and Delhi is provided by people who live in such settlements. And when I was working as a reporter in India, I used to go into such areas to interview the children there, especially to find out if they were able to go to school. Um, I was writing on education. So I was looking at the impact of government policies regarding free education for all, for instance, and whether that was successful or not. And often I would find that children couldn't go to school because of very difficult domestic or financial circumstances. Sometimes they had to work. Um, But one of the things that stuck with me was that, you know, they were often witty, very sarcastic, didn't really answer my questions. And these were traits that I couldn't capture in my news reports, you know, because you're writing to a deadline, you're very strict word counts, especially while working for a newspaper. So in this book, Engine Patrol on the Purple Line, I've drawn from, you know, those interviews, from those encounters to create these characters who are essentially composite of the children that I'd met while working as a reporter. Mm-hmm. And explain the title to us, Gin Patrol on the Purple Line. So gins are spirits. They're interpreted variously across various cultures. Uh, people in Asia and the Middle East believe in them. And uh, they're meant to be spirits created by God and they can be good or bad and they can possess your soul. So people fear them, people also worship them. And in India, for instance, there are places where jinns are meant to live and people go there to you know, ask various things. It could be something as simple as passing an exam or getting a job. The jinns are essentially genies. I mean, mm-hmm. they've been Americanized. The Hollywood version is a genie, which is much more benevolent than how a jinn is viewed in a country like mm-hmm. India. And the Purple Line? Uh, the Purple Line is a metro track that runs from the outskirts of the city where Jay and his friends live to the city. And uh, so it's a metro line and it symbolizes progress. And for them, it shows them a world that is, you know, within reaching distance, but also quite far away for them. And Jay is nine. Um, I do think you're very good at boys. I have a 10-year-old boy of my own and enjoyed the, the boyishness that you managed to put on the page. Um, he's nine. He watches a lot of police TV. And so when one of his friends goes missing, he decides to become a detective, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. I think for him, it's a way of telling himself a story. As a child, he is in quite significant danger in the situation. And I think at some level, he possibly understands that. And calling himself a detective is a really easy way of distraction. It's a technique of evasion. And so he and his friends, he has um, two best friends, Pari and Faiz. And Pari is sort of the brains of the outfit. Mm-hmm. And um, 
she is much better at everything than Jay is, <laughs> but it's something Jay isn't willing to accept, at least initially. So there is this constant tussle between them. So they, all three of them decide to work together to try to solve this mystery and find their missing friends. But in between, there's also this constant one-upmanship, at least on the part of Jay. Mm-hmm. You don't name the city in the novel. Why did you make that decision? So I wanted to point out that this could happen in any city in India, and it actually does. But it also gave me some distance from the actual disappearances of children in India, which is what inspired the story. Mm -hmm. But I also had to give myself some permission to write about it so that it wouldn't appear as if I was trespassing on another person's pain. And one way to achieve that, I found, was to not name the city. And I could also create it the way I wanted it to, you know, populate it with people and buildings wherever it worked best. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Yeah, that was essentially, I think, one of the main reasons. And tell us about the language. There's lots of Hindi words in the novel, which I enjoyed. How did that happen? To write Jay because he speaks and thinks in Hindi and there's an element of translation involved because I'm writing in English. And it was really difficult to capture the specificity of a child's voice in another language, a language different to the one in which he's speaking. And I felt that the best way to capture the sort of cadences and rhythm of Hindi was to use a few words and it would possibly root it uh, mm. in its very, you know, specific cultural milieu as well. You know, when I was growing up, I used to read books by English writers and American writers, and this is before the internet. So there are lots of words whose meanings I didn't know. You know, mm. I had no idea what ginger ale or school was <laughs> while reading The Famous Five. But I sort of believed in the writer and I believed in the characters. So if they were saying this was good, then, you know, I believed it. And I'm I'm just sort of hoping that readers will give me the same kind of a free pass, I guess, in well, some ways. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, well, teach us something now. Tell, give us an example, maybe. There's Renu Didi, which is Didi's elder sister. Mm-hmm. Or there is something like Are. You know, everyone keeps ending sentences and beginning sentences with Are, mm-hmm. which is a sort of catch-all expression in India. And it it can mean anything from, you know, hello or pay attention to me or <laughs> what are you saying? So, yeah. You cover very dark subjects. I mean, the darkest, really, the disappearance of children, the the, the worry about what's happened to these children. Um, and yet the novel brims with light. Was that difficult to achieve? It was. And, you know, I spent... A, fair amount of time thinking about how to write this story. So almost eight years since the idea first occurred to me because I felt like it would be really difficult to write about a very marginalised, very vulnerable community. And how do you do that without sensationalising or romanticising poverty in any way? So I had to really figure out, you know, how to achieve that balance. And finding Jay's voice was one way in which I could do that because he is a naturally ebullient child and he has you know some ways naive he's also quite observant and sensitive but also has arrogant views about himself very (laughs) self-assured so that offered me a way to tell this story which goes to really dark places you know without it being sort of weighed down Mm -hmm. by everything that was happening I, I, I worried that if I did anything else people would not see beyond Uh, these characters' problems. And it was really important to me that they exist as people, as, you know, someone you can identify with and connect to. 
Well, you've certainly done that. It's a great achievement. Um, tell us about your journey to publication. Uh, so it was a really long journey. I wanted to be a writer when I was a child, but it wasn't seen as a viable career option for very good reasons from, you know, in my family. And so everybody sat me down and said, no, you're not studying English literature. <laughs> you're not becoming a writer. You have to do something practical. And so becoming a journalist for me was, you know, it was a way in which I could keep writing, but also engage with issues in my society and I really enjoyed being a journalist and I think I didn't miss writing fiction at that time and it was after I moved to this country and at the back of my mind there'd always been this thought that at some point maybe I'll do like an evening creative writing course and when I moved here I got an opportunity to do that because at that time in India there were no creative writing courses Mm -hmm. so I did an evening course and yeah I really wanted to write fiction from that point onwards. But, you know, it took me nearly 10 years to getting a publication deal. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a long road, isn't it, as I always say to my students. Um, But I'm very glad you've travelled that long road because this is a wonderful novel. Thank you for coming to talk to us about it. Thank you for having me. And that was Deepa Anapara bringing us to the end of this edition of the Bookseller Podcast. We'll be back in February. Thanks to Deepa Anapara, Sophie Hanna, Philip Jones, Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe. If you'd like to talk to us, you can tweet at The Bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. And finally, here is a clip from Miss Austin by Jill Hornby. This is narrated by Juliet Stevenson. Jane Austen's sister, Cassandra, is trying to protect her sister's reputation by finding and destroying her letters. And that will end the January edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Kentbury, March 1840. Miss Austen? The voice came from behind her. Forgive me. She turned. I did not know you were there. Cassandra managed a smile, but stayed where she was on the vicarage doorstep. She would dearly like to be more effusive. She felt the distant, familiar stirrings of effusiveness somewhere deep down, but was simply too tired to move. Her old bones had been shaken apart by the coach ride from her home in Chawton, and the chill wind off the river was piercing her joints. She stood by her bags and watched Isabella approach. I had to go up to the vestry, Isabella called as she came down from the churchyard. She had always cut a small, colourless figure, and was now, of course, poor dear, in unhelpful, ill-fitting black. There are still duties... Against a backdrop of green bank dotted with primrose, she moved like a shadow. So many duties to perform. The only distinguishing feature about her person was the hound by her side, and while her voice was all apology, her step was remarkably unhurried. Even Pyramus, now advancing across the gravel, was a study in reluctance with a drag on his paws. Cassandra suspected that she was not welcome, and if that was so, could only blame herself. A single woman should never outlive her usefulness. It was simple bad manners.